We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church in Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, let me invite you to use one of the Pew Bibles. You can find it on page 762 or page 891 in the Pew Bible. We're beginning a brand new sermon series. And I promise, a year ago at this time, we did this exact same thing. We started a brand new sermon series, and I said whores and prostitutes like 52 times. Because my kids counted and told me when we got home that day. We're not going to be talking about uh, whores and prostitutes this morning. That was applicable to the book of Hosea last year. But this year, we are starting a new sermon series in the book of John. So, if you're looking at John chapter 6 this morning, we're going to be looking at seven of Jesus' I Am statements. Now, these are unique statements that Jesus makes about who he is. And they only are found in John's Gospel. You can think of it this way. Jesus is explaining in his own words his understanding of who he is and why he came. So he says things like the passage before us today in John chapter 6. I am the bread of life or I'm the light of the world or I'm the good shepherd or I am the true vine. Each one of these particular I am statements reveals an aspect of Jesus' ministry to his people or on behalf of. Of the needs of his people. So you think about it. Jesus is the light because we walk in darkness. You and I need direction, so he's the good shepherd that guides his people. In every one of these I am statements, what we see is that Jesus, he wants us to receive him. But not receive him for the things that he can give to us, but for the beauty and the majesty of who and what he is in and of himself. So all of these I am statements, when you take them together, give us a comprehensive picture of Jesus as Messiah. I was watching YouTube this past week, and I watched a short clip about one second of animation. And they were doing it in the kind of older style rather than doing it uh, digitally on a computer, in which they take cells and they draw little pieces of the picture and they lay one over the top of them. And for one second of animation of a mother jaguar and her baby jaguar, for her tail to flick and for their eyes to blink, one second of animation took like 25 cells laid over the top of one another to create the whole image. That's what we're doing with these I am statements, is that we're going to look at each one of these images and we'll put them together and hopefully at the end we'll have a better understanding of who Jesus is and how he wants to work and to serve his people. So if you would, please stand as we read God's word this morning. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 30, we read, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven And gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. 
And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Will you pray with me? God, we ask that this teaching would fall like rain and that the name of the Lord would be proclaimed and that we would ascribe greatness to our God. Amen. Now, this is the first of these seven I am statements. And it comes immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if you've ever heard this, there's kind of the cardinal rule of real estate. Location, location, location. Same thing is true about understanding and interpreting the Bible. There's a rule that you have to understand and follow. It's context, context, and context. The gospel writers didn't simply write a bunch of things on paper and then throw them up in the air and then kind of however they fell out, they decided, well, that's the way that we should put this together. But they put things together in certain orders in order to be strategic. And they pair certain stories or the teaching of Jesus in certain ways in order to emphasize certain things that he said or that he's done. In this particular passage, John gives to us at the beginning of chapter 6 this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. It's a miracle that's performed by Jesus that's actually recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus has this crowd that's been following him. Word has spread about the things that he's doing and the the things that he's teaching. And so this great crowd gathers around to hear him speak. And towards the end of the day, his disciples come and they say, here's the deal. We've got all these people here. None of them brought food. We weren't expecting this thing to go as long as it has. And we need to send them away so they can go eat. Jesus says, no, you feed them. And like, we don't have the resources. He says, well, find out what resources we do have. And so there's a young boy that there, and he has some food that he's willing to share. And so Jesus thanks his father, and he begins to bless it, and he breaks the bread, and they've been to distribute this meal. And 5,000 men, so the implication is that there are really probably 15,000 people there. 15,000 people are fed by Jesus from just a small sack lunch of a little boy. We're told that they gather up all that's left over, And there was enough to fill 12 baskets with the fragments from the barley loaves. John puts this miracle right before Jesus' teaching on his being the bread of life. And what we see in this miracle is that the crowds wanted to take him by force in verse 15 and make him the king. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for someone who was going to come and deliver them. And they see Jesus performing these miracles. And they're like, that's the guy. If he can feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish, then he can do what we need. Jesus recognizes the heart and the intentions of the crowd. And he gets in a boat. And he goes across the lake to Capernaum. And he joins his disciples there. But the people find out where he's at. And so they get in a boat and they follow him over. And then they get there, they start asking him questions. See, they wanted something from Jesus. They recognized that he could do something that nobody else could do. He could provide for their physical needs. 
And so they were looking for him to do just that. You get a sense of this when you look at how he greets him. He says to them, I tell you the truth. You're not looking for me because you saw miraculous signs. He said, but you're looking to me because you ate the bread. You had the loaves and you had your fill. And he recognized that they were immature in their faith and that they just saw him as a way to accomplish their goals, to have their needs met. So they have this discussion. And finally, in verse 30, where we began reading, they asked this question. Okay, so you're saying you're the Messiah. Well, you know, God gave Moses this wonderful sign and our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. What sign are you going to perform? Which is kind of a ridiculous question if you think about it after what they had seen the previous day. I mean, they had seen and experienced Jesus feed a huge crowd with a simple sack lunch. And yet here they are asking for a sign. Confirm that the things that you're saying about yourself are true. Show us a sign. They say, God gave our fathers manna, or they say, Moses gave the fathers manna in the wilderness. We're connected to him. God did that. What are you going to do for us? And Jesus says, okay, you want to talk about bread? You want to talk about manna in the wilderness? Let's get a few things straight. Moses didn't give your fathers manna. My father in heaven provided bread in the wilderness. And their response is, that sounds great. We're up for that. Give us this bread always. But recognizing that sometimes we understand, but we really don't understand. You know, we comprehend, but we don't fully comprehend. He goes on to be more specific in verse 35. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of the seven I am statements. But what's not apparent, what you don't see in your English translation. Is that Jesus is specific in saying what he is. But he's also specific in saying how he says it. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, in the original Greek, there are a couple of ways that you can say I am. You can use the word ego, which is where we get our English transliteration ego. You talk about somebody who has a big ego. It's the self, the I. Or you can use another Greek word, emi. Either one of those can be used to communicate the reality of being I am. Jesus doesn't say, ego, the bread of life. He doesn't say, emi, the bread of life. But he takes them together and he shoves them together and makes this compound word. And he says, ego, emi, the bread of life. And so if you were to literally translate this into the English, it would go like this. I am, I am the bread of life. Now, this is a rare structure. People don't typically speak like this. We don't see this in other places in the New Testament. Only in these unique kind of seven I am statements. But there is some place where it occurs in the Bible. If you go to the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is just basically a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. If you go into the Septuagint and you go to Exodus chapter 3, which is a pivotal chapter in the story of God rescuing and redeeming his people from bondage in Egypt, he appears to Moses. It's a story we're all familiar with. He appears to Moses in a burning bush. In verse 13 of Exodus chapter 3, God says to him, Moses asks this question to God. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, well, what's his name? Okay, you're saying, Moses, the God of our fathers sent you. What's his name? What am I to say to them? 
And God in verse 14 says to him, I am who I am. Or you could translate it, I am what I am, or I will be what I will be. It's a very peculiar phrase. And those men who were translating the Septuagint, they chose to translate this particular passage where God reveals his covenant name, Yahweh, to Moses. In the Greek is ego, emi. So when Jesus says this exact same thing, I am, I am the bread of life, there's this echo of the covenant sacred name of God. Jesus says, I am, I am the bread of life. But there's something else going on in the Greek structure. R.C. Sproul notes that the way this sentence is structured puts the focus on Jesus and not on the idea of bread of life. So in English, I am the bread of the life. I is the subject. And it took me a little while because I'm not very good with grammar. So it took me a little while to figure this out. I is the subject and bread of life is the predicate. But in the Greek, this is actually reversed. So a literal translation would go something like this. The bread of life, I am, I am. Or the bread of life is I. And what it's doing is it's moving us beyond the idea and helping us not get caught up in the concept of bread of life, but focusing our attention on Jesus, that he is the provision from God the Father in heaven. Constructing this sentence emphasizes Jesus rather than the bread. Now this language of I am, this language of focusing on Jesus in this way is usually connected with divine pronouncements in the Bible. So when you take these two realities together, it becomes clear what Jesus is saying. He's claiming to be divine. We believe that the Bible teaches that God exists One God in three distinct persons. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. He is the only begotten Son. And he's saying, I am the bread that came down from heaven. He's claiming to be divine. And this is not lost on his audience. That's why in verse 41, you hear or read, the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And notice what they say. They say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And how does he now say, I came down from heaven? They're saying, we know who this Jesus is. He comes from a questionable background. You remember the story of Jesus. His mother has this divine revelation that she's going to give birth to a child that's conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph decided to put her away and divorce her quietly because he was an honorable man, but he also receives a divine revelation in which he's told, no, God is doing something special, and you'll name this child Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. They're saying, we know the story of Jesus. Yeah, Joseph says it was divine, Mary says it was divine, but we know the story. He comes from questionable origins. And now he's going to tell us that he is the I am that comes from heaven? So Jesus makes these claims. I am the bread of life. But he also makes certain promises. Notice what he says in verse 35. He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And what he's talking about is something more than just physical food. So the way things work at our house, we have a 12-year-old son. And he wakes up in the morning. His mom fixes him breakfast. And a few hours later, he does this. He comes to the kitchen. He's like, I'm hungry. What do we have to eat? 
Can I have a bologna sandwich? Uh, can you make me a fried bologna sandwich, Mom? And he lives with this expectation. It's our job to feed him all throughout the day. Because we know our reality is that we eat a meal. It could be the best meal you ever had in your entire life, but within a short period of time, you're going to be hungry again. You're going to need to eat. You and I, we know we have to eat physical food every so often, or we're going to be hungry. That is our reality. Everyone is hungry and thirsty. Jesus is saying that the people who come to him will no longer hunger or thirst. So what does it mean to be hungry and thirsty? What is it that he's driving at here? To be hungry and thirsty means to be driven by unmet desire. So in the Bible, we often talk about or see hunger and thirst used to represent powerful desires. In the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, he writes, Come, all you are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? But listen to me, eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. We sang about that this morning when we sang, Come, ye sinners. We're driven by desire, but we don't have the ability to provide for ourselves. We talk about hunger as this desire. We use it even in contemporary language. I'll give you an example. This past week, I can't guarantee for 100% certainty, but I'm 99.9% certain that some sports writer, some announcer before uh, you know, the play college playoff games on Monday said this. The University of Alabama Crimson Tide. After losing to Auburn and being shut out of the SEC championship game and losing to Clemson in the national title game last year, they're hungry for a win over Clemson. I guarantee you someone said that. And what they're saying is that these guys, they want to win and they won't be satisfied with anything else. We know what it means to be driven by hunger and thirst. Sometimes there are realities that are emotional and psychological. Sometimes people are driven by just the literal hunger and thirst they experience because of the conditions in which they live. 805 million people today will go undernourished. For them, hunger and thirst is not an abstract concept, but it's a reality in which they live. Those kinds of people, when they experience hunger, they describe it in this way. They say that hunger limits you in a way that's difficult to comprehend. People who are hungry are consumed with the thought about getting food. And when they get food, about keeping it, preserving it, making it last as long as they possibly can. They're worried about the idea of when their next meal will come and where it's going to come from. One writer in writing about this, about her experience growing up, uh, experiencing uh, uh, this cycle of hunger, she says it's a vicious cycle. You want something better, but you don't know how to get it. And so you're always living with this sense of a lack of security. But Jesus says those who come to him experience a totally different reality. He says, the ones that come to me, they shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Think about what he's describing. Think about how satisfying it is to eat a meal when you haven't had food for several hours. Your stomach's growling, you're feeling those pains, and then someone provides a meal for you. How satisfying it is. Think about how refreshing it is after you've been out, you work in the hot of the summer and the heat of the day, and you come in and you drink a glass of ice-cold water. 
Think about how refreshing and how satisfying that is. But Jesus is saying, that's a temporary satisfaction. But what he's offering is something that lasts. He's offering something that goes not just into your stomach, but something that satisfies deep down in your soul. So this morning, let me ask you this question. What are you looking to Jesus for? Are you like the crowds and what you really want, Jesus, is just to fix your problems? You just want Jesus to give you a temporary fix, give you some bread to get you through the day. Or do you want more? See, the question is not whether or not you're hungry. You're hungry. You're thirsty. The question is, where will you go to find food for your soul? The prophet Jeremiah, he writes about this. He's writing to the nation of Israel in the second chapter. He says this, he says, this is God speaking. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says there's two things the people of God did. They've forsaken God. And all of us in here have done the exact same thing. Driven by desires, all of us are trying to satisfy those desires somewhere or in someone or in something. It might be sex. It might be comfort. It might be convenience. It might be recreation. It might be uh, you know, in finding that right relationship. It might be the illusion that the, the, the illusion of having more and more will give us the security that we long for. But just like the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God, every single one of us have forsaken God and found, or trying to find, our desires met somewhere else. Secondly, though, after forsaking God, then they made their own cisterns, only to find out this truth. Broken cisterns can hold no water. And you and I look to other things to satisfy our hearts. The only way that God can do it, and things never turn out, the way we imagine. When we look to other things to satisfy us, we're always left disappointed, bitter, and broken. We're kind of like Edmund from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you remember the White Witch, she finds Edmund and she offers him this temptation of Turkish delight. And C.S. Lewis, in writing about it, he says this. He says, while he was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. And at first, Edmund tried to remember that it's rude to speak with one's mouthful. But soon he forgot about this and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could. And the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. He was never satisfied. When we go to any other place, any other thing, any other person to try to find satisfaction for our soul's deepest longings, we're going to be like that. We'll never be enough. And we'll never be satisfied. So why do we go to these other things? It's foolish. Think about it. If we were to leave today and, and I were to invite you out to lunch and you were to pick your favorite restaurant, let's say Outback Steakhouse. Okay? That used to be one of my favorite restaurants, and so it's really easy for me to talk about Outback Steakhouse. And I said, we're going to lunch. My treat. I just want to bless you with this wonderful meal. And we go, and we check in with the hostess, and they seat us at a table, and then they bring the menus, and you decide that you want to order Alice Springs chicken. It's a chicken breast that's cooked, and it has cheese and bacon bits. I mean, it's just out of this world good. And so we order, you know, two entrees of Alice Springs chicken, and the chef begins to work, and he puts the chicken in the oven, and you know, a few minutes later, they bring out this meal, and they place it before us, and you smell 
the aroma of Alice Springs chicken. And you see the presentation of Alice Springs chicken. But you do something peculiar. You get up from the table and you go out the back of the restaurant and you start digging through the dumpster in order to find something to eat. That would be foolish. And anybody that really cared about you would come and say, what are you doing? Why are you eating out of the trash when something wonderful has been provided for you? But that's what we do all the time. We reject the goodness of the gospel that God has provided in Jesus in order to go eat table scraps. To eat out of the trash. Every one of us is hungry. Every single one of us is hungry. But sometimes, maybe you're like me, you have this experience. You're so hungry that you go into the kitchen and you open the refrigerator doors. Or you open the cabinet where you keep all the snacks and stuff. And there's so much there that you don't know what you want to eat or what you should eat. So you wind up eating nothing. You're overwhelmed with so many options that you're not sure what you should do. So you do nothing. I think we experience a similar kind of thing in a spiritual reality. We have so many options, so many things available to us, that we choose unhealthy things. And I think our choices reveal what's going on in our hearts. I think those choices reveal what we're really hungry for. Think about it. You and I, we're living in a time and a place where we have more options than any other generation in the history of the world. We have so many different ways to spend our time, our money, and our attention. Think about a typical day for you. For me, I struggle. I, I struggle to spend 15 minutes in reading the Bible. But I can sit down and spend 45 minutes on Facebook or Twitter without breaking a sweat. 10 minutes in prayer? Hard. But I can watch four hours of football. It's like nothing. It's like a second. There's so many choices. And I think the choices we make reveal where our heart really is. Jesus says this. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. I treasure all these other things rather than treasuring Jesus. My heart, like yours, I believe, is fickle. My spiritual reality is summarized in the third verse of Come Thou Found. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Right here. Prone to wander, Lord. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. There's no question. I love God. No question about it. I love God. But my heart is so fickle. I love a million other things. And I treasure those other things more than I treasure Jesus. And I'll tell you why. Because it's easy. It requires nothing on my part except simply to waste my life away in the pursuit of my own comfort, my own convenience, my own pleasure. But here's the good news. God's faithful, even when we're faithless. Notice what Jesus says in verse 37 about the Father's role in all this. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 37 shows us the two sides of our coming to faith in Christ. It's the beautiful doctrine of election. In salvation, there's God's part, and then there's our part. 
Now, in modern evangelical churches, the emphasis is primarily focused on our role in coming to Christ. But the Bible takes a different approach and says that God is the one who plays the initial and the important role in salvation. He's the one who gives us to the Son. He's the one that draws us to the Son. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus came to do God's will. And he says, it's my Father's will that I would not lose anything that he's given to me. And it's my Father's will that all who look to me would receive eternal life. There's a lot in here about will. But there's nothing in here about your will or my will. Because our will is flaky and fickle and going here, there, and everywhere. But he says, my Father's will, that's what I'm about, and I'll do it. Think about this. We're like fifth graders on a field trip. A couple years ago, I got to chaperone Hudson's field trip to the aquarium. And there were four students elected, chosen, and assigned to me for their care. And we went into the aquarium, and this is what happened. One said, I want to go over here. And one said, I want to go over there. And another one said, I want to go here, and I want to go there. And it was my responsibility to make sure at the end of the day, they all got home and they were where they were supposed to be. That's one of the roles of Jesus is that he was sent by the Father to protect and to provide for his people. So this morning, do you really hunger for Jesus? Do you really hunger for Jesus? In saying that he, I am the bread of life, Jesus is showing that he's the only thing that you and I truly need to have the deepest longings of our life fulfilled. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Maybe you've got questions. Maybe you're not sure you can trust Jesus. Maybe you're not sure he's going to provide for you. But if he provided for the crowd, then you can trust him to provide for you and for me. Jesus himself said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Let's pray.